Christians are the highest gun-owning demographic in America. Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And when it comes to the death penalty, Christians are the biggest defenders of the death penalty. The Bible Belt is the execution belt in the United States. So that troubles me, you know, because of my love for life and it fuels my activism on these issues. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm Andy Dixon. It's good to have you here. We're in for a ripper of a conversation today. Shane Claiborne is such a beautiful human being, and it was a privilege to speak to him. As you'll hear in the conversation, he has his finger in many interlinking pies, and so I actually spoke to him on his phone with him pulled over on the side of the road having just finished for the day in DC and heading off to his next destination. Um, and we managed to finish the conversation with him on 1% on his phone. So uh, so yeah, got in just in time. One of the things I love about Shane is he's just so humble and relatable. He's just an ordinary guy, and yet he's learned that his life can make a difference, and so he's given himself to that. Some of you will have listened to episode 17 with Kaz Todd Pearson from The Simple Way, and Shane is one of the founders of The Simple Way, and he's still a huge part of that community in Philadelphia. We don't actually go into this so much because there's so much else to talk about, but if you want to hear more about The Simple Way, uh, go back and listen to that chat with Kaz in episode 17. Uh, We do cover a whole bunch of stuff in this conversation, and none in the depth that we could have, so at the end I'll connect you with some of the books that Shane has written and other places to find thoughts from him, so you can dig deeper if you want to. We cover his time with Mother Teresa, his activism and civil disobedience, his pacifism and commitment to non-violence, including his time in Iraq during the war, uh, and his fight against gun violence and the electric chair. It's action-packed and sure to leave you inspired. This is episode 29 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Shane Claiborne. Yeah, so thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Uh, I know some of my listeners will have heard you, but not all of them. Um, so why don't we start with just how would you describe who is Shane Claiborne? Cool. Yeah, man. Good to be with you. So I I uh, grew up down in Tennessee in you know what we call the Bible Belt here in the U.S. and uh, really uh, surrounded with the Christian subculture. You know, we had all the T-shirts and bumper stickers and whatnot. Uh, and I, I did. I fell in love with Jesus. Uh, I also began to identify some of the contradictions that I saw in the church, you know, and in my own life, too, kind of being uh, formed and shaped by that. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've really learned to appreciate what Gandhi said when he was asked about Christianity. And he said, I, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like them, you know. And, yeah. and so, I, you know, I, I wanted to I, I wanted to be as faithful as possible to the things Jesus said. So I, I was really, um, I, I admired Jesus and the things he said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, sell what you have and give it to the poor. I just hadn't seen many people uh, 
live that out. So I, I uh, went up to Philly and that's, uh, I, I went to Philly to go to college, to, uh, you know, university. And uh, I, I wanted to study sociology uh, because I, I, I like, you know, Karl Barth says we need to read the Bible in one hand, but the newspaper in the other so yeah. that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world we live in. So that, that really was uh, massive for me. You know, it's where I got sort of radicalized. I, um, as I was in my undergraduate work, that there was a group of homeless families that moved into an abandoned Catholic church in Philly. And uh, that's where a lot of things changed for me. I sort of had my second baptism in, in that old abandoned church. Mm. And um, our community is the fruit of that. So a couple of years later, we started The Simple Way, uh, which has been around about 20, over 20 years now. And um, so, yeah, man, that's that's a little yeah. bit snapshot of the last 45 years. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we'll talk a little bit about some, some uh, specific things you've been up to as we go through the podcast. But I guess as you started off being passionate about all of this, you, you ended up in India with Mother Teresa. How did that come about? Yeah, so uh, right after the takeover of the abandoned church where, you know, a group of homeless moms and kids were living in this abandoned uh, church building, and we started a student solidarity movement to support them. And um, that, you know, all of that uh, was happening. And we we decided, you know, in, in the summer after that, let's learn from somebody that seems to be really serious about their faith. And there were a lot of great dead people, but, you know, we, when we started looking at who was still alive, Mother Teresa was alive and we wrote her a letter and uh, eventually ended up calling on the phone and she picked up the phone and uh, we, we spent the summer, some of my college friends and I in India, and I worked in the home for the dying and I worked in the orphanages and uh, that has made a big impact on my life and on our community too. I mean, one of Mother Teresa's lines was uh, what, what's important is not how much you do but how much love you put into doing it. So yeah. we're called to do, you know, not great things, but small things with great love. Mm. And, and in fact, even our name, the simple way was, um, uh, was inspired by some of, uh, that, you know, charisma, the charism of mother Teresa. And she wrote a book called the simple path. And, and she used to say following Jesus is simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. D- when you were heading over there, you obviously had some ideas of what it would be like. Was it like that or was it different to what you're expecting or, or yeah. How was that experience actually turning up there? Yeah. Well, what I, what I didn't really expect was how many other people showed up there to help sustain the wonderful work that mother Teresa and the sisters had started. So there were volunteers from all over the world. Um, so, you know, I never really had this idea that I would be mother Teresa's little, college intern, but you know, I didn't realize there'd be dozens of just amazing people, doctors and students and uh, grandmothers, you know, and everything that had come over there to work. And um, we did worship services each day, you know, we were in prayer every day together. And then we, we, we started the, the work in the homes. Um, and it was a lot like I imagined it really. I mean, we were literally bringing people off the streets that were dying and we were holding their hands and, you know, singing with them and 
as Mother Teresa said, you know, walking with them as it, so that they did, they weren't alone as they died, you know, and it was very holy work. One of my friends said, uh, it felt like we were travel agents, you know, between this world and the next one. And, you know, so yeah, it was, it was incredible work. Yeah. Awesome. And how did life then change for you when you got back? Mother Teresa, she had a, a wonderful commission. She said, you don't have to go to Calcutta to find Calcutta. Calcuttas are everywhere if we only have eyes to see. And, you know, one of the things I learned going to India is you don't have to go across the world, uh, you know, to find folks that are um, struggling to make it. In fact, sometimes it's easier to love people in, on the other side of the world than the people right across town. Yeah. So we came back to Philly and, and um, started uh, our work, you know, with that vision of, of sort of this is our place and what does it look like to wrestle the principalities and powers that are here, the things that are squashing people's dignity and hope. And what does it look like to, you know, um, usher in God's dream for our city, for our neighborhood, for our block. Uh, and, and so that, that's, uh, you know, what we set out to do. Yeah. The simple way is, is the uh, community that you're part of. Uh, if people want to find out more about that, they can listen to my episode 17 where I chat with Kaz Todd Pearson, who's the current director of that. Um, so we won't, we won't go into all of what that's about, but when you think back over the last sort of 20 years or so of, of that community, what is it that you're most proud of? I, I think just being a place for that long, you grow roots, you know, just like a tree, uh, you, you uh, when you've created a sort of root system of relationships and they, you know, and trust, uh, takes a long time to do that. So I'm proud to, you know, been able to call that place home for these years. Uh, it's, you know, very countercultural too. I think stability is a traditional kind of faith value of the monastic traditions, you know, to, to a lot of the saints are remembered for the place they, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And so like, uh, I'm not comparing myself to the saints, but I think what they what they did was they had a real calling to a place yeah. and and to a people. So, um, uh, you know, I, even the 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 proper nouns in the gospel, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, Capernaum. So I love you know my my neighborhood and my the people there. They inspire me all the time. I mean, even in COVID, we became a COVID testing site. Uh, we we. My, my neighbors were delivering food to the seniors and to the people that were vulnerable. So it's just, uh, uh, it's an amazing place with this kind of resilient faith that defies all the obstacles. Uh, so, you know, when we started our community, one of the first books that we read was a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And one of the things he talks about is that if we just have this grand grandiose vision of community we can destroy people trying to build that vision but if you focus more on loving the people around you then the community emerges from that so yeah. you you know it's it, you said you know the person that loves loves community destroys community it's kind of very uh, counterintuitive but you got to just focus on the people right next to you and so we've tried to do that you know for 20 years and i i'm we've you know, not, not lived up to that aspiration every, every day or every year, but we've tried to, and we've allowed community to evolve and change the programs that we run to be rooted in relationships and to sort of, uh, you know, continue to take new, new forms. So 
Um, the other thing that we tried to do is to um, hold together the relational stuff in our neighborhood with the activist work for justice. So um, I, th I think compassion and justice need to be, they need to work together like blades of scissors, you know, and um, Martin Luther King had a great, uh, you know, way that he talked about the Good Samaritan story that Jesus told about rescuing the person in the ditch. And Dr. King, Martin Luther King, he said, we're all called to lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you want to do something about the road to Jericho so that people don't keep ending up in the ditch. So those, you know, uh, really go together. So for 25 years, we've lifted people out of the ditch, but we've also been asking the question of why do people keep ending up in the ditch to begin with? Yeah. And that's something that I've observed from across the globe is that you seem to have this real balance of um, public, big, justice-focused conversation and activism, but still managing to stay committed to your home community and loving your neighbours um, on a real intimate level. Has that been a hard balance to, to carry or has is, is it been like those blades of the scissors where it just naturally has gone together for you? Uh, well, it, it takes intentionality, you know, and um, like, for instance, I've, I've always had a limit on the amount of days that I'm away from my community. Um, and I've discerned that with the people closest to me so that I'm not just talking about what we do, but we're doing it and we're not losing our feet on the ground, you know? Um, but I find my, if I'm, if I'm a little lopsided and uh, I begin to feel a little imbalanced, you know? So like, for instance, if I'm just giving away food, I start to feel like I want to do something about why people are hungry. But if I'm only in the streets and we're, you know, meetings in Washington, trying to change the policy stuff, I find myself really longing to be home and play in a fire hydrant and uh, weed the garden, you know, and hang out with the kids. So, um, and I, I think a lot of people, when they talk about burnout, it's maybe because they, we, we haven't held those things together. So this year has been pretty unique, man. I've been, after 25 years in Philly, Katie and I have been spending a lot of time this year with our family in North Carolina and Tennessee. So we have a old school bus that's converted into a little mobile tiny house with a compost and toilet and uh, solar panels. And we're living on that. And uh, awesome. I get to go back to Philly every chance I get. But we've been um, having more than just a holiday you know, yeah. with our biological family, which is a real gift, man. So yeah, nice. my, my dad died when I was young and my mom and I are really, really tight. I'm, I'm her only kid. So I'm um, loving spending some time with her. I just, uh, uh, we'll, we'll be headed over there for her birthday in a few days. Oh, nice. Oh, I hope you enjoy that. Uh, this, this passion for loving your neighbor has gone really deep for you and it is more than just handing out some food and thing like to the point where you've actually done acts of civil disobedience and been arrested while standing up for, for people. Uh, you know, what sorts of things have you gotten up to and, and why is it that you've done that? Well, there, there's a great tradition in the church of going to jail, you know, <laughs> I mean, starting with Jesus, I guess, maybe even earlier than that with the prophets, you know, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, but you know, with Jesus and the, the disciples, there's this sense that we are not just 
trying to defend the status quo of the world, but we're reimagining the world. You know, what would it look like if God's dream were realized on earth? Or as Jesus said to pray, the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the people have really uh, done that work of uh, the gospel, seeking first the kingdom of God, have found themselves uh, in what, you know, John Lewis called good trouble. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, when he went to jail, he said, at first, I was a little troubled to go to jail, but then I looked at history and saw what good company we have, yeah. you know, behind bars. So, I, you know, I, I think that that, um, that, that tradition of, of good trouble and holy mischief is something that uh, we see all through Scripture. You know, folks that are ruffling the feathers and the early Christians that are uh, in Acts, it says that these folks are—, are causing trouble all over the empire, you know, and, and, um, so it's never our goal to go to jail, but I think that there comes a point where, as St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. So we want to try to challenge the, uh, policies and the, um, the, the forces that are hurting our brothers and sisters. So the first time I went to jail was actually, with friends who were homeless. And um, Philadelphia was passing laws that made it illegal to sleep in public and illegal to share food. You could literally couldn't grab a pizza and share it in the park. Uh, so we wanted wow. to challenge those laws and we did, and we went to jail for that. And uh, You know, I lost count around 30 uh, uh, arrests, I guess, but we've um, we've often won in court and we've exposed the unjust laws by uh, challenging them. You know, and some folks that grew up in the church, they'll raise the question of Paul's writing in Romans that we're meant to respect the authorities. And I always found it ironic that Paul, who wrote that verse, ended up for going to jail for disrespecting yeah. the authorities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. But I think there's two ways to respect the authorities. And one is by obeying the good laws. And the second is by uh, respectfully disobeying the bad laws. And so we've always been committed to nonviolence, but we see um, the value of direct action and, uh, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience. And so we've done that, you know, even... uh, uh, Recently, you know, in the past year, we've gone to jail for challenging uh, the policies of Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, I'm very proud of those. Yeah. <laughs> I, tell, I tell the uh, kids in our neighborhood, you can get arrested for doing things that are wrong and you can get arrested for doing things that are right. When you see us going to jail, uh, we're going to jail for things that are right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess that's a, a big thing for the kids in your community to see actually here's someone you know, standing up for what's right um, and still being mistreated, showing them that actually life isn't fair, but we need to take a stand for the good. Yeah. And, you know, many of them know that because we've seen uh, disproportionately young people of color who are going to jail for doing nothing at all or yeah. who are being shot for doing nothing at all. Yeah. So I think there's a sort of... Um, suspicion that many of the young people in my neighborhood and throughout our country have, especially young people of color, that the system uh, like is not like God ordained all the time, right? Like this is not the hand of God. Yeah. 
that we see working, but we see uh, our systems are very broken and they are destroying the lives of, of many people. And we, we need some massive changes in our country. So we've been in the middle of this racial reckoning and I'm, I'm grateful for it. You know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the, the new sanctuary movement around immigration and so many other, the poor people's campaign, so many of the things happening in our country, people of faith are at the very heart of it. I guess, again, looking from across the globe, uh, it's very heartening to see people like yourself and the others behind those movements uh, standing up for what's right. And that's inspiring to look at our own country and go, what is it here that I need to stand up for? Um, you know, we don't have exactly the same situation as you have, but that doesn't mean we don't have the same sort of problems um, and the same sort of things that we need to take a stand for. So, um, yeah, really inspiring. Well, it goes both ways. You know, my brother Jared McKenna and so many others over there, a lot of your your folks have been really, you know, dear friends and have inspired a lot of us too. Uh, a lot of the uh, Maori leaders and, uh, and, and, and also in Australia, the Aboriginal leaders, like they've been incredible inspirations for me. So you got a lot of good, you know, good reckoning happening over there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, in the, a lot of the work around environmental justice, around indigenous rights, those are all very similar to what we're up to here. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, nonviolence was a really key part of, of what you're about. Um, when, particularly when you do these acts of civil disobedience. What is it that drives that particularly? Well, for, for me, my primary motivation is Jesus. You know, as I look at Jesus's life, um, th- there's this unmistakable presence of, of love, even for enemies, of nonviolence. Uh, even as he's being killed, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And it's not a sentimentalism. I think it's a uh, and it's not that he's just being walked over, but I think he's showing us that we wear hatred down with love, that we don't use the same tools as uh, those who are against us to fight them. And in fighting the beast, you don't become the beast, you know, um, and 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 really that love love triumphs over evil. I mean, it's the, what Jesus does on the cross is absorb all the violence of the world and subvert it with love, forgiveness, mm-hmm. and an empty tomb. Um, and, and even when Peter kind of impulsively picks up his sword to defend Jesus, uh, Jesus scolds him and says, put it away. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he heals the guy that Peter wounded. And uh, the early Christians understood that as really the final triumph over the sword. Uh, Tertullian and others said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed all of us. Because if ever there was a case for trying to use violence to protect the innocent, Peter had the case when he picked up his sword. But I think Jesus just consistently shows that uh, as the Prince of Peace. So that, you know, and in addition to, my commitment to Jesus, I just see, you know, so many of the folks that inspire me, uh, like Dr. King and Dorothy Day and Oscar Romero and, uh, I mean, all sorts of folks around the world. Um, uh, they, they, it was that commitment to nonviolence that was a part of their, their spiritual DNA. Yeah. And your commitment to it isn't just a, like, I know people that would say that they're pacifists. But they're never—they're very rarely in a situation, or maybe even never in a situation, where they have to actually 
enact that theology um, in a real way. But but your uh, commitment to that has taken you into situations where that's a real thing, like um, the civil disobedience stuff. Like uh, you went to Iraq, is that right? That was that during the Gulf War that you were there. Yeah, I went to Iraq in two thousand and three. And, uh, you know, everything unfolded. It was a little unclear exactly the timeline for what was going to happen. But what uh, ended up happening was we were in Baghdad uh, during the bombing and the escalation of the war as it kind of launched there. So the what a lot of us remember is the shock and awe campaign, you know, 900 some bombs a day that were being dropped uh, in Baghdad and Iraq and so I saw some of the most horrific things that I've ever seen, but I also became as convinced as ever that that, that violence is not going to solve the violence, right? That it's yeah. only adding people to the fire. Um, so I saw that firsthand, you know, in, in Iraq. And And what was it that got you over there? Like, did you just wake up one morning and go, hey... They're going to drop bombs on Iraq. Let's let's head over there. You know what? What was that? Well, I I did know of um, groups like Christian peacemaker teams that were founded around the idea that we've got to be more organized for peace than people are organized for for war, and we've got to be as willing to die for the cross as people have been willing to die for the sword. So we need that kind of courageous, nonviolent witness in the world. Um, look at all the courage that people have shown for violence and for war and militarism, risk their lives, you know? And so uh, I didn't go to Iraq, you know, to, to be a martyr or anything, but I went with this deep conviction. Um, do I really believe that Jesus meant that, that we're to love our enemies and that the, 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 that we're to live by the, the, the cross, not the sword, that we've got to be uh, willing to die for something, you know, and that, that was, um, and I didn't obviously see Iraqis as my enemy, but I, I know my country did. And so, you know, we went over there to try to bear witness. And I, I mean, it was an amazing group voices uh, for creative nonviolence, Christian peacemaker teams, all these groups came together and we had veterans, we had pastors, we had grandmothers and grandfathers and young people all together. Uh, and I spent a month there. And there's so many things, you know, that uh, it's more than I can say on a podcast. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you one experience was there was a prayer service right as the bombs started to fall in Iraq, in Baghdad. And there were hundreds of Christians uh, from different traditions that had come together and they read a statement that was collaboratively written, and it was written to address to Muslims. And it said, we want you to know that we love you and that we're made from the same dirt of this earth. We come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah, you know, and, and they, it was this beautiful statement. And then one of the bishops pointed to the cross and he said, the cross is the centerpiece of our faith and it teaches us how to live in a world with such violence and evil without mirroring that violence and evil. And it's the narrow way that leads to life. And so, you know, the whole place erupted and singing amazing grace in Arabic. And I was so moved, you know, as I listened to this familiar song, but now in Arabic. 
uh, I went up and I got tears rolling down my cheeks. And I said to one of the bishops, I had no idea that there were so many Christians in Iraq. And he stopped me in my tracks and very humbly said, uh, yes, son, this is where Christianity started. <laughs> and he said, you didn't invent it in America. You domesticated it. And this, you know, Iraqi bishop said to me, he said, uh, uh, you go back and you tell the the church in the United States that we are praying for them to remember who they are. Wow. And he pointed out the window and he said, that's the Tigris and the Euphrates. Have you heard of those? You know, he said, this is the land of your ancestors. And and so, uh, you know, I, I kind of walked away with a, a much deeper sense of my own faith and my own history. And also that, you know, um, America is not the center of the world. And, you know, I think it's it's it's. Um, most of us know that, but, but, uh, we're really good at acting like we are the center of the world over here. Oh, that sounds like an amazing experience and glad you came home from that. Um, but yeah, you've continued on. One of the things you've been really vocal about is gun violence, um, and, and the need to, uh, change the way that America thinks about guns. I can hear in, in your passion, you know, what's driving you to that. What particularly made you go, actually, this is a fight I want to take up? Yeah, well, first of all, these things are not disconnected from each other, right? Mm. Uh, like, again, Martin Luther King said, I've told the kids in the ghettos not that violence won't solve their problems. But then they asked me, why does our government use massive dose of, uh, of violence to try to bring the change at once. Yeah. And Dr. King said, I knew I couldn't speak against the violence in, in our neighborhoods without speaking against the violence of our government. And I mean, he, call, he, he said he called the U.S. government the biggest purveyor of violence in the world. So it's, it's not disconnected, you know. Um, in fact, when I got home from Iraq, the kids on my block had written in sidewalk chalk, war no more. They had written, you know, these messages, peace, you know, like love one another. And, um, and so it's my commitment to life, you know, that, that drives me that every person is made in the God, in the image of God. Every person's a child of God. Um, and, and I will say that, you know, I grew up, we grew up saying that we were pro-life, uh, in the church in the Bible belt. But we really only thought about one issue most of the time, which was abortion. And I think a lot of folks who say that they are pro-life would be more accurate to say that they're pro-birth or they're anti-abortion. Because it was as if life began at conception and ended at birth, you know, like because these other issues, Christians have often been on the wrong side of uh, life. And so I wrote a book on gun violence. And I wrote a book on the death penalty because I saw on these two particular issues, and you could also say militarism and the war in Iraq. I mean, Christians were some of the biggest champions of the war. Um, but Christians are the highest gun-owning demographic in America. Wow. Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And when it comes to the death penalty, uh, Christians are the biggest defenders of the death penalty. The Bible belt is the execution belt yeah. in the United States. Uh, so that troubles me, you know, yeah. because of my love for, for life. Um, and it fuels my activism on these issues. 
and I'm really excited. I mean, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can see changes on the death penalty mm. and gun violence uh, and hopefully militarism and, and military spending too. So, yeah. On the gun violence thing, I think one of the best quotes I saw in the whole of the early stages of the pandemic last year was, was one of yours saying, people saying, um, I don't want to wear a mask because God will protect me, but I need a gun. You know, there's something wrong with that <laughs> yeah. theology. Yeah, well, I will never understand that theology that I don't need to wear a mask because God will protect me from the pandemic, but I need a an assault rifle. <laughs> yeah. You've not only just, again, written books about it, but you've actually got involved in it. I know um, not that long ago you, you did a bit of a tour with your, your bus and actually asked people to bring their guns and melted them down. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how did that happen? Did you, did you see a result of that? Did people come and bring their guns? Did you get much response? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, uh, first of all, the, the, you know, what inspired the transformation of the guns was a, a verse from the prophets, Mike and Isaiah, uh, in the, you know, the old Testament, they, they cast this vision of beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. Right. And they go on to, you know, um, kind of put this beautiful vision of a world where people live without fear and study war no more. But we love that idea of transforming metal that is designed to kill swords into plows, you know, into, into tools that are meant to cultivate life. And so we began inviting people to donate guns. We have more guns than people in the United States. Uh, we've got about 5% of the global population in the U.S., but we have almost half of the world's guns. Wow. And it's just un unbelievable, right? Um, and at the same time, listen to this. Um, uh, Two-thirds of Americans uh, live without guns. So, you know, th this is, it's, it's, it's just a, it's mind-boggling. So anyway, we, we figure people have got guns they want to get rid of, and they did. First gun donated was an AK-47 a weapon of war that's still legal on our streets. Wow. And then we've had hundreds of guns uh, donated since then. In fact, I'm, you know, joining you from the car because I was in DC with a bunch of young people taking guns off the streets of D Washington, DC. And we made shovels yesterday and we were literally making shovels out of guns as the news story from San Jose, where nine people were killed, another mass shooting in America happened. So what I love about that vision of the prophets is they take things into their own hands, right? And they begin to transform their weapons into, into garden tools. And, um, you know, after every mass shooting, our preachers and our politicians offer thoughts and prayers. And I believe in thoughts and prayers, but I also believe in action. And I believe that thoughts and prayers can be a place to hide from responsibility if we aren't careful. So, um, you know, when people say all we can do is pray, I always say, no, that may not be true. We can pray, but we can also organize yeah. and we can get in the streets. We can change policies and laws and make it harder for people to kill other folks. So, you know, I believe that things like the gun problem, folks will say it's not a gun problem. It's a heart problem. And I say it's both, you know, God heals hearts and people change laws and we need both. You know, we need to address the heart problem and we need to address some of the policies that need changing in our country 
uh, around guns and the death penalty without a doubt. I mean, tomorrow, listen to this tomorrow, I'm going to South Carolina where uh, South Carolina just brought back the firing squad and the electric chair as valid methods of execution. And uh, so I'm going there with a group of other folks to, uh, to raise our voice and try to try to say uh, we can do better than killing to show that killing's wrong. Yeah. Um, so just one last question about, about the death penalty. Um, you know, last week you were out campaigning to try and stop the execution of Quinton Jones. Uh, and unfortunately that execution went ahead. And and yet now you say you're you're on the road to to South Carolina to challenge those recent decisions about the death penalty. Uh, what is it that keeps you going in the midst of the heartbreak um, when when what you're campaigning for doesn't see results immediately? There's a few things, I guess. One of them is I I always come back to what what Jesus modeled for us, which is, I, I think, one of the most profound acts of solidarity the world has ever seen, you know, is that God leaves all the comfort of heaven to join the struggle here on earth and is born a brown-skinned Palestinian yeah. Jewish refugee executed on a cross and even felt that despair that, that we felt maybe a little glimpse of in Texas, right, this last week. Um, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I think there's moments where Jesus felt that and we feel that. So we carry it together. And I think the, the movement and the community is also how we carry it, you know, that we bear one another's burdens. So um, and for me, I didn't know Quentin Jones. I've known other folks that were executed, but I didn't know him personally. But we're standing there with a woman that met him that morning, yeah. has been meeting him 11 years as his friend. And then she watched him get executed and they come out of that room and, and tell us that when they touched his body, incidentally, for the first time, she was able to touch his body after 11 years of knowing him because they weren't allowed contact visits was after he was dead. And she said his body was still warm. His body was still warm because they had just killed him. and. But to be there with her, right, to, for her not to be alone in that moment, that's why we're doing this, to know that uh, George Floyd uh, should never have been killed. He should still be alive. We remember him this week on the anniversary, uh, but we will not allow that family to be alone. You know, we, and, and I think that solidarity is what, why we're doing all of this, is to remind each other that you're not alone. There's a God that is with those who suffer and we're doing our best to walk alongside those who are suffering and bear the burdens with them. Oh, and you're doing a great job of it too. In the show notes, I'll put links to, to all your um, social media sites and, and um, mention a bunch of your books in there. Uh, real pleasure to have you, uh, real pleasure to meet you um, and really appreciate uh, your public challenge, your, your call to action for the rest of us simply by being who you are and doing what you do. Um, so thank you for bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. You too, man. Thanks. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks everybody for listening. All right. Take care. Hello. Hello, heaven. Will I hear you whisper to come near? 
I'm so grateful to Shane for blessing us with this conversation. I admire his willingness to actively live out his faith in a way that involves sacrifice, opposition, and even arrest, but also brings great freedom and joy both to him and to others. One thing we didn't really get to, but is a huge part of Shane's current work, is his co-founding of a movement called Red Letter Christians, based around the words of Jesus that are often highlighted in red in our Bibles. These are people who have gone back to the scriptures and said, what if Jesus actually meant what he said? What if when Jesus asked us to love our enemies, he actually meant that? Maybe loving them means not killing them. What if Jesus really meant that caring for the poor is like caring for Jesus himself? And how would that change how we live? What if Jesus really meant it when he chastised the religious for who they kept out, and then gave us an example by welcoming all those whom the religious system was rejecting? Red Letter Christians includes authors, speakers, pastors, academics, and heaps of others. Um, Check out their website in the show notes for articles and links that are guaranteed to get you thinking. Uh, And as they kicked off the movement, Shane actually co-wrote a book with Tony Campolo, uh, about a decade ago, called Red Letter Revolution, which I 100% recommend. Other books Shane has written include his first book, The Irresistible Revolution, written again about a decade ago, about how his journey began, and about the community that he helped found the simple way. In Executing Grace, he goes more into the death penalty, uh, which is still in place in a number of states, particularly in the Bible Belt, and his most recent book, Beating Guns, is about the gun issue in America and his commitment to non-violence. So for those and a bunch of others, head to his website, shaneclayborn.com. And he's also written a heap of articles that you can find on redletterchristians.org. And I'll have both of those in the show notes. So thanks, Shane, for your time, your words, your life. And here is a simple blessing I offer you in return. As you continue to live life, be it in Philadelphia, elsewhere with family, or on the road. May you continue to find the simple way to be the life-giving way. May serving the disadvantaged always push you to the microphone to challenge the systems that put them there. And may being in public view always remind you of the people who need help now before the system changes. And may God continue to fill you with grace and passion for both. As you stand against executions, celebrating life even of those who have taken it, May your words and actions not fall on deaf ears, but be a catalyst for change, even if it's only one mind and heart at a time. As you beat guns, moulding and shaping them, may you see peace in each shovel, each one representing changed lives, and knowing that your life, which you are allowing Jesus to mould and shape, is also a tool for good in this world. And may those red letters of scripture, the words of Jesus, continue to mould and shape you, to challenge you and to bring you peace. May they drive you in hope towards a better future for us all. And lastly, no matter what you do or don't do, what you can change and what you can't, may you know that you are seen, you are known and you are loved. As usual, thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia and thank you all for listening. Join me next time when I talk to Naomi Nicholas from Karufa Trust, an organisation helping New Zealanders navigate our complex history and encouraging cross-racial conversation and action. We talk about what her work involves, how she got into it, and where she, as a Pākehā, has found her fit in the conversation. Until then, 
med ännu ett tag. Eto mata matoi terangi kia tapu to ingoa kia tai mai to rangatiratanga kia me ate tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua kia rite anō ki tō terangi Humai kia mātou ai nei e taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Muro mātou hara me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou i te kino Amen